You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello to the herd. For the next two months, Unbiased Science is conducting a listener survey to help us get to know you, your interests, and what you think of the show. Please support the podcast by taking the short questionnaire at surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback will help us improve Unbiased Science and the sponsors that connect with you. Plus, as a way of saying thank you, you will be entered to win a $500 Amazon gift card. Again, that's surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. Yeah, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science alone. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are going to talk about fiber and prebiotics. We both have a lot to say about this topic, so we're really excited to tackle it. Before we do, if you haven't already checked out last week's episode, we tackled the topic of seed oils, which is rife with misinformation. Um, Seed oils have been vilified in, um, you know, pop culture and viral TikTok videos and all kinds of things. Wellness influencers. Wellness influencers. So we set the record straight with the data and the evidence, so definitely go back and give that a listen if you haven't already. So let's let's just get into it. So fiber, I know Andrew, you have a lot to say about this and <laughs> you'll you'll give a little history about, you know, why you're so uh, uh, well versed <laughs> in, in the world of fiber. But fiber, you know, when I hear fiber, I immediately think of, you know, pooping, pooping. <laughs> and having oh, good poops. poops. But But fiber also has other known benefits, right, related to cholesterol and cardiovascular health and all all kinds of good stuff. So fiber is is awesome. So, Andrew, do you want to set the stage? Let's talk about fiber. Let's talk about prebiotics. And we should probably also talk about probiotics. I think a lot of these terms get (laughs) conflated and used interchangeably. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So let's maybe set aside probiotics first because it is a different class. So probiotics are pre or or, um, pro means to support or in favor of. So probiotics are foods or supplements where most people hear probiotics that actually have microorganisms in them. And the goal or the intention is, is it's to help improve your gut microbiome. And probiotics, again, most of these supplements are things like lactobacillus or uh, bifidobacterium, things that do live in the gut as part of the hundreds of different species of microorganisms that live in the gut, but they're also easy to grow in a lab and they can be um, lyophilized or freeze-dried essentially so that you can take them in supplement form. So we did a podcast episode on probiotics and the TLDR is that there's no real clinical evidence that probiotics are actually beneficial to health. Um, You have, as I mentioned, 500 different species of bacteria already living in your gastrointestinal tract and there's trillions of individuals 
individual microorganisms. And so taking probiotics, which are, you know, usually orders of magnitude lower, doesn't seem to actually improve your health. They're typically only one species. Most of those actually don't survive the acid in your stomach. And actually, there's new data to suggest that because they're only a single species, it can actually reduce the diversity of your microbiome, and it's actually not beneficial. So there are very rare instances, medical indications, where probiotics might be prescribed by a clinician. But broadly speaking, probiotics are a whole separate class, and they relate to these bacterial supplements. And I'm so glad that you said that, because we will get very specific questions from people who say, okay, you're saying that probiotics are not necessary, but my doctor recommended them. And of course, I think this this goes for everything, of course, that you know that we talk about. If your licensed medical practitioner, clinician, whatever, advises you to take something, of course. I mean, we're describing population level data, right? Um, and so there are generalizations and all that. So if your individualized health plan is different, that's a different story. Right. And there's there's certain instances where there there is some evidence, um, especially in infants where they don't really have a well-developed microbiome and they have antibiotic-resistant infections where they have to treat with more potent antibiotics that can impact, you know, what's living in their their gastrointestinal tract. But I also want to be clear that when we say clinicians, we're not talking about non-evidence-based practitioners like naturopaths and things like that, because those are often the people that are prescribing these things that don't have evidence to support them. Very good distinction. Yep. So probiotics, bacteria, no evidence, go listen to the old podcast. Prebiotics and fiber broadly are, are things that serve as food for the microbiome that already lives in our gut. So typically these are things that we're consuming in our diet, but there are also supplements that offer the um, as well. So, so very broadly, prebiotics are a fancy term for fiber. And fiber, we think of in the context of, you know, cellulose, which is a type of fiber. So the, that's a, a polymer that makes up cell walls of plants. But fiber is a very broad class of substances, typically carbohydrates, that we human cells and the enzymes in our gut cannot digest. So what ends up happening is they make their way down to our gut gastrointestinal tract, where the microorganisms live. Remember, there's trillions of microorganisms in our gut, and they actually are then able to digest those indigestible carbohydrates and provide us a variety of benefits, uh, nutrients, and they also contribute to other things that we'll talk in more detail, like ensuring that our stool is the proper consistency. They also help um, adsorb and and extract um, cholesterol from the food, so it doesn't end up in our blood circulation. But the biggest thing is that they're helping to feed our microbiome, maintain that diverse population, which is always dynamic and it's always changing because it's responding to the things we're eating and ultimately, you know, ensuring that that we're pooping at a relative healthy frequency. So Andrea, so all prebiotics are fiber, is that right? But not all fiber is prebiotic. That's correct, because there are some fibers, like cellulose, that even the bacteria in our gut can't digest. So those fibers, we would consider both insoluble and also indigestible, and that makes up a decent chunk of the bulk of our stool, in addition to a lot of bacteria that we poop out as well, which uh, if you watched our 
posts on Instagram. We did talk about that previously too. So and we're, we're going to get into this, but fiber is super important, right? And the current recommendation is that women should aim to consume about 21 to 25 grams of fiber per day. And men should be uh, getting about 30 to 38 grams of fiber per day. And this, we're talking specifically about getting this from food, right? But we know that the average American is not getting that that recommended level. I think it's uh, it's estimated that the average fiber intake among Americans, excuse me, is about 15 grams per day. So a lot of people are turning to fiber supplements to make up that that difference. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So do we want to get into fiber now? Yeah. So as I mentioned, fiber is a catch-all term that we use to describe indigestible carbohydrates and lignin. Lignin is a polymer that's made up of repeating units of an alcohol called phenol. Now, remember, alcohols, uh, it's not just the, the ethanol, ethyl alcohol that we consume, but alcohols are molecules that have uh, hydroxide and OH attached to them, and they end, the words end in all. So phenols are type of alcohol. Polymers are just long chains. So lignin is a long chain of these phenols. It makes up the woody structure of root vegetables and things like that, broccoli, cruciferous vegetables. So it's similar to cellulose, um, which we find in like celeries and things like that. But again, indigestible. So fiber is essential for GI function, passage of stool, but it also, as I mentioned, helps maintain our microbiome, which is critical for our health. Um, We don't fully understand the whole scope of what the microbiome does, but we do know that it's super important. We're going to talk specifically about the microbiome in a future episode, but it also helps improve things like LDL cholesterol levels, which is the bad cholesterol, and other things. So we often use the term soluble and insoluble fiber when we're talking about nutrition and nutritional sciences, but it's actually more complicated than that. So soluble in this term means that the fibers dissolve in water, and insoluble means that they do not. So very broadly in the context of what you're eating, that's a really good kind of rule of thumb. Most of the fiber supplements you're going to be consuming are forms of soluble fiber, and we'll talk maybe about a couple examples later. But basically what soluble fiber does is it attracts water, and it often forms like a jelly or a gel-like consistency. And this helps to slow digestion, which facilitates extraction of nutrients. It also helps um, facilitate the slowing of gastric emptying and promoting the feeling of fullness as well. So soluble fiber can be found in a lot of different things. A lot of your whole grains, so bran, barley, as well as nuts and seeds and legumes and beans and and also fruits and vegetables. A common supplement that we use that is soluble fiber is psyllium husk, which is actually derived from a seed that's ground up essentially, and that's a a fiber, a soluble fiber supplement. Because soluble fiber also helps helps to extract or adsorb fats and lipids from our food. It also can help lower the risk of heart disease by reducing LDL cholesterol and triglyceride levels. So insoluble fiber is the stuff that doesn't dissolve in water. And we often call this bulk forming fiber. And this is often found in foods like wheat bran, a lot of vegetables, because cellulose is a big component of our insoluble fiber. And cellulose makes up every single cell wall. Um, 
Um, so anytime you eat any sort of plant, you're consuming insoluble fibers. So insoluble fibers, again, because not even the microbes in your gut can digest them, it ends up just being in the stool. So it adds bulk to the stool. Um, it helps food pass more quickly. And then, um, as I mentioned, cellulose and lignins are key insoluble fibers. And these are the polymers that make up your cell walls. So there's a chart that we'll, we'll add maybe to the show notes that have some key examples of molecules. So another soluble one that we talk about is pectin and mucilages. And, and um, actually, psyllium husk is an example of a mucilage-based um, fiber. Now, aside from the water solubility context, they have a lot of other properties. So it's not just as simple as soluble versus insoluble. So we talk about the water holding capacity. So that's the solubility. But these these factors, so the solubility and whether or not it's soluble versus insoluble, it can help slow the gastric emptying. So it slows down the digestion. That actually improves digestion because it allows the enzymes in our GI tract to work more efficiently. It improves digestions, especially of fats and proteins, because it slows gastric emptying. It can also moderate the glycemic response, so that insulin sugar response when you consume things. It helps the enzymatic activity of a variety of enzymes in the gastrointestinal tract, which help to reduce those plasma or those blood cholesterol levels, and it also improves the passage rate of your stool. Aside from that, these insoluble fibers also participate in bulking. And what that means is it helps distend your stomach and your GI tract. So basically gives you that sense of fullness and ultimately reduces your appetite. So bulking helps um, serve as an appetite suppressant. And if I could just jump in, because I know, you know, a lot of people will say that they feel bloated, right? And that's why it's often not recommended to consume, like, well, I'm talking more about supplements now, like fiber supplements. You, you know, if you, if you go from nothing to taking a huge amount of, of fiber in through some supplement, you can, sometimes people feel really uncomfortable and bloated and they get that distended feeling. Yes, exactly. Because especially the fiber supplements you're taking are absorbing water. It's going to retain water, which is going to increase the size of the whatever you've consumed. And it's also providing substrate for those microbes. And microbes undergo fermentation. And when they ferment, they produce gas. And that's also going to contribute to bloating. So you definitely don't want to go from like zero to 60. Um, you always want your increase in fiber to be a gradual process so your body can kind of adjust. Well, and is that why, you know, the old adage, you know, beans, beans, they're good for your heart. Yes, exactly. (laughs) The more you eat, the more you fart. Definitely. Yeah, because beans are super high in fiber and exactly what you're Beans are super high in fiber and the gut bacteria love to ferment them. Absolutely. So let's jump into fermentability. So as I mentioned, fiber is a food source for the gut microbiome. So that allows the microbiome to increase in biomass. It also helps them produce these fermentation products. So again, the gut is an anaerobic environment. It's low in oxygen. So bacteria are typically undergoing fermentation, which is a non-oxygen metabolic process. And one of the things they produce are short-chain fatty acids, which are very important both for the microbiome, but it also is the preferred energy source for a very important cell type in the gut called colonocytes. Colonocytes are colon epithelial cells that help regulate the intestinal environment and transport of nutrients out of the gut. And they love these short-chain fatty acids that microbes help to metabolize and produce. On top of that, um, 
um, the ability of these fiber sources to improve the diversity of the microbiome also contributes to a phenomenon called microbial antagonism, which basically means the more good bacteria you have living in your GI tract, the less likely a pathogenic bacteria can take hold because there's less square footage for them to grab onto and colonize. So that's super important as well. And then two other principles of fiber that are really important are the adsorption of compounds. So adsorption means grabbing away as opposed to absorption. So what this allows is it improves bile acid secretion. Bile acids are critical for absorption of lipids, including fat-soluble vitamins. It also helps emulsify fats that we're eating. And that um, that path pathway is the the primary pathway for breaking down cholesterol, and it actually accounts for about 50% of the turnover of cholesterol. So that actually is critical for regulating those blood cholesterol levels. And then the last thing would be the encapsulation component of certain fibers. So basically, they help to form little fiber bubbles around other food sources, other nutrients in the food, such as starch, which is then transported to the lower intestine and is not broken down in the stomach acids so that it can then be digested in the proper compartment. So yeah, fiber is really, really important. Um, and those are just a very short overview of all the things that fiber does. All right. So obviously we're going to talk about supplements, but can we just talk, and I know you gave a bunch of examples of you know, food sources of fiber. Yes. yes. So for sure, fruits, you know, avocado, raspberries, pears, apples, plums. I know anytime I have a little trouble, I'm feeling a little backed up or my oh, kids, prunes. Are, I'll have a little, yeah, prune juice that really gets things moving. Obviously veggies. So, you know, green peas, broccoli, turnip greens. These are things with really high amounts of dietary fiber. Grains, whole wheat pasta, barley, bran flakes, quinoa, and legumes, nuts, and seeds. So split peas, I couldn't believe this, just one cup contains 16 grams of dietary fiber. Fun fact any- for you, um, one yeah. avocado has 10 grams of fiber. And you wouldn't really? think that avocado is that high in fiber, but it is insanely high in fiber. Yeah. Lentils, black beans, baked beans, and chia seeds. Now, Andrea, when I when I was putting uh, this little outline together, chia seeds got me thinking, do you know about this TikTok trend, the internal shower? No, but I think you're going to tell me about it. So let's 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 get it out there. So it's this drink that people are consuming. Uh, you mix a tablespoon or two of chia seeds into water, into a glass of water, and you squeeze lemon juice into the glass, and then you drink it on an empty stomach. And this is supposed to clean out your system, improve bowel irregularity, tree constipation, and that's why it's called an internal shower. And that, you know, there's, I guess, you know, we're saying chia is high in dietary fiber, so it makes sense. But, um, so the internal shower drink, I just want to be clear, this is actually, so it it got, um, got started on TikTok. There was a nutritionist who started touting its benefits, but it's actually a replica of a traditional Mexican drink called agua de chia. So I just want to be clear about that. Um, And so, yes, we know chia is a good source of fiber, but of course, Andrea, people are taking it beyond its, you know, the the benefits of of its fiber um, and, you know, ability to help us poop and all that. They're saying that it, you know, cleans us out. 
out. It detoxifies the body, that it prevents or treats things like hangovers. So they take, you know, they take, we always say a little seed of truth and then they, you know, they're, they're blowing it out of proportion. And actually there is, uh, I was looking at the poison control website and there this internal showers on their radar because people in order to sort of expedite the benefits of, of they're taking uh, a ton of, of it, right? They're taking a ton of it. And it's, you know, there can be adverse events if you're consuming too much. So the, the poison control has a statement on their website. We could share the link consumption of large amounts of chia seeds can result in an accumulation of chia seed gels and can cause obstruction of the GI tract. And at least one person has required hospitalization for this. Other people have experienced um, serious allergic reactions called anaphylaxis, facial swelling, shortness of breath, rash, dizziness, um, three days after consuming chia seeds in an attempt to lower their cholesterol levels. So again, you know, you don't want to jump into taking a large amount of these things. And anytime you're taking something new, it's always a good idea to, to run it by your clinician, right? Who's familiar with your health risks and, and history and all that good stuff. There's such thing as too much of a good thing. Chia seeds are very, very high in fiber. An ounce of chia seeds has 10 grams of fiber. So if you're taking a couple of tablespoons of chia seeds and you're putting it in lemon water, that's a large quantity of fiber. And this is a soluble fiber. So again, it's bringing water to it. It's forming a, a essentially a mucusy plug that can obstruct. And if you're not consuming a, a correlate increase in water to accommodate the increase in fiber, yes, it can be very serious. So again, don't go from zero to 60. You don't need to overdo the fiber. Okay. So do you, Andrew, do you want to talk about the risks of low fiber, high fat diets? Yeah, because that's a, that's a good segue into some, some of my personal history. So we talked about, you know, the, the dangers of the low fiber diet when we talked about the carnivore diet. So definitely tune into that episode. But as we mentioned, generally people should be consuming 25 to 30 grams of fiber. It's really important for GI function, stool formation, bowel movement, absorption of nutrients, and all of that. But it also, um, low fiber can be associated with a variety of gastrointestinal issues, including pancreatitis, which is inflammation of the pancreas. Diverticulosis is a bulging of the intestine, and that can progress to inflammation and even abscess, which can progress to what we call diverticulitis. Diverticulitis can also progress to abscess formation, as well as rectal bleeding, colonic stricture, which is basically where the muscles in the colon atrophy, and they form, you know, essentially a, a wall where stool can't move normally, and also a fistula. And a fistula is when one tube or one compartment of your organ system connects to an inappropriate portion. And this often happens between the colon and the bowel, but it can also occur between the colon to the uterus, the vagina, other parts of the bowel. Fistulas are are very, very serious. In addition, low fiber can lead to constipation because you don't have that bulk and that that mass to move your stool. Um, Straining during constipation can lead to hemorrhoids. It can also lead to irritable bowel disease. And because fiber is important for adsorption of these nutrients, including triglycerides and LDL, it can low fiber can also contribute to things like heart disease, all cause mortality, including cardiovascular disease, type two diabetes 
diabetes, and also a variety of cancers, including um, colon and rectal cancers, most obviously, because if you have these inflammatory processes going on, um, that can lead to mutations in the cells in the colon, and that can lead to cancer over time, but also things like liver cancer and breast cancer. So yeah, fiber is very important. Um, Please steer clear of people saying that you don't need fiber in your diet or you should eat carnivore diet or things like that. Um, Lots of really great options across the board, um, you know, to get more fiber in your diet. So this has a little bit of a personal resonance with me um, because I developed a condition and anybody that follows my personal Instagram has heard all about it, but I developed a chronic anal fissure and a fissure is kind of like a paper cut. So basically at the entrance of the anus, um, I developed a cut and basically anytime I went to the bathroom, the cut would get ripped open. It would bleed. It leads to the, the muscle, the sphincter spasming. And so it leads to this throbbing pain. And this happened in December of 2019 right before the pandemic. So the hospitals shut down all non-essential surgeries. So I had gone to uh, four different colorectal surgeons for consults because it was so often fissures heal by themselves and they're considered acute. Mine was considered idiopathic because there was no underlying cause. So fissures are often triggered by things like childbirth or or anal sex or things like that that can obviously or or severe constipation. But there was no reason that mine happened and it wasn't healing and it was getting worse and I was having 24/7 pain. And so I ended up long story short ended up having to have surgery. I didn't get the surgery until July of 2020, so I had to deal with this for like 9 months and it was the most excruciating nine months of my life. It felt like I was getting stabbed with a knife all day, every day. But part of trying to mediate that in a non-surgical way and even after surgery was keeping really good track of my fiber intake. And so I do eat a very high fiber diet. I swapped out all my uh, my white pastas for whole wheat pastas, um, which honestly I've kind of grown to love. I really enjoy the texture now. But yeah, avocados, super high fiber. Um, raspberries and blackberries, really high fiber as well. But that's something that I became very cognizant of and I still do to this day. And I do personally take a daily fiber supplement in the form of a glass of Metamucil. So I get to feel like an 80-year-old woman. I have my glass of Metamucil. But it ensures that even on the days where maybe I, you know, I was traveling for work and I didn't have an opportunity to have a really good leafy green salad, um, I still, you know, add a little bit of, of fiber through that supplementation. I have a random question. How did you choose Metamucil? Since there are so many different fibers, that, and we're going to talk about this. There's a, there's a, a, a class of uh, you know, clinicians or whatever researchers as well who feel that it's very should be very personalized because fiber, different fibers work in different ways and have different properties and characteristics, sort of like what you're talking about. And then there is another camp that's like, nope, all fiber is great. Just you know, take fiber. Just curious. So I went to four different colorectal surgery surgeon consults, and the first three I was not thrilled with. They were recommending a very invasive surgical procedure that has the highest risk of fecal incontinence. And as a 30, how old was I? 33-year-old woman at the time, um, just poop leaking out was not something I was looking forward to. So this fourth colorectal surgeon, she was fantastic. She actually did a really great job of explaining female anatomy and how the sphincter is actually shorter and how that, you know, that was the historic standard for this, this corrective surgery. She was 
newer to the game, um, you know, had insight about some more novel procedures. So I had what was called a, a flap anoplasty and a fissurectomy, as well as um, injection of Botox into my anal sphincter. So that paralyzes the muscles, it relaxes them, so the spasms stop. And then they cut out the, the cut that has a lot of scar tissue and skin tags so it can heal more cleanly. But anyway, she specifically suggested that I do a glass of Metamucil every day. And that's something that in her clinical practice seems to be universally pretty well accepted and, and does well in, in nearly all patients. That's that's actually the psyllium husk um, supplement. So that's a very, very common fiber supplement. And even in these mixed fiber supplements, you'll often find psyllium present. That's what Ethan takes. Sorry. Sorry, Ethan. He's out, he's out there <laughs> loving that I'm talking about what he's t- taking. But yeah, he does the scoop of the psyllium every day. That's, yep. that's his yep. fiber of choice. Yeah. Um, Cause you don't want those hemorrhoids from straining and all that good stuff. So Andrea, I, I'd like to get into some of the, the research, the data, but is there anything else that you wanted to get into before we get into all that? Yeah, so I think, you know, the big the big TLDR is there are different fiber supplements on the market. It is best to get fiber, the recommended daily value of fiber from your diet. If you are used to consuming very low fiber diet, you want to increase your fiber intake gradually. So this is something that I've worked up to over many years, but rapidly increasing fiber intake can lead to unpleasant GI impacts because of course we are adding bulk and we're also drawing in water and we're forming this gel. So gas and bloating, especially because now your bacteria have all this food and they're just kind of going wild in there and they produce gas when they ferment things. But it can also lead to constipation if you're not concomitantly increasing your water intake because you can't add bulk if you don't also add water for it to absorb. Um, And that's often why one reason that food is the preferred method because those food sources are often very high in water content as well. So you can actually get your fiber and water in a single go. Okay. So I looked at a lot of studies and there's a lot out there. So again, just to set the stage here, most Americans, I think it's like 90% is the best estimate, don't consume the recommended level of dietary fiber. And as we said, we're typically only averaging about 15 grams per day and we need more than that. And so because of this, a lot of people are turning to supplements. So as Andrea said, this is just so important that we want to keep emphasizing it. It's always best to get fiber from your diet. And there are so many options. You know, we listed a bunch and we could put the examples in our show notes. Um, But, you know, fiber supplementation may be appropriate in some instances. And I think it's increasingly being recommended um, by clinicians. But only a minority of the fiber supplements on the market today possess the physical characteristics that underlie the mechanisms that really drive the, you know, clinically meaningful health benefits. And there's those were, such... those were all the things that I talked about earlier, the bulking, the absorption, the water holding, the encapsulation and the fermentability. Well, exactly. So you just, I was just about to say, took the word, you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so for example, and we've talked about this, you know, you have psyllium, which is a soluble viscous gel forming, non-fermented dissolves in water. You know, if you've ever taken it, you know, you have to like drink it quickly because it really like it turns into. I let one sit one time and it was like, it was like solid when I turned the glass. 
Yeah. It's, I mean, it's pretty gross. I mean, <laughs> you don't drink it quickly enough. Um, and so exactly, because it's not fermented, it remains gelled throughout the large bell. And so it softens hard stool and constipation. It firms, um, firms loose liquid stool and diarrhea, and it, you know, can normalize stool. And this is different than inulin, which is soluble, non-viscous, readily fermented. It dissolves in water. There's no increase in viscosity. It is rapidly and completely fermented. And so, you know, it has a different, a very different effect on, on our bowels, right? I will say from what I was reading, readily fermented fibers, it's sort of this emerging area of science. And there's really, well, in terms of how they relate to our gut microbiome. And Andrea, as you said, you know, we're only like just beginning to really understand our gut microbiome, right? But the marketed fiber supplements of today, there's really not a whole lot of data, you know, clinically meaningful data that support their benefits. Right. And this is, this is true for a lot of these things that we look at and they're like, oh, it changes your microbiome. And it's like, Yes, but what does that mean? You know, we don't, just because it changes doesn't mean anything necessarily. It means that the microbes are responding to what's in there and some are better able to metabolize certain things and some are not. And there are hundreds of species of microorganisms in your gut and without understanding a cause and effect relationship, you can't really make any conclusions or interpretations on that. And, and that's why, you know, these more well-characterized sources of fiber, especially those that come in food, because foods are going to have multiple fiber sources in one, it's going to offer all of the benefits of fiber without simply supplementing it. And I think that's so key. And if we haven't already like really emphasized that, you just hit the nail on the head. It's, you know, the, 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 the foods have the multiple different you know, types of fiber in them, right? Whereas the ones that we're getting in our supplements are typically from like one isolated type of fiber. All right. So there's a study that was put out by Stanford Medicine that I just wanted to talk about briefly. It was published last April in Cell Host and Microbe Journal. And so what they did is they monitored thousands of molecules involved in metabolism and the microbiome. They tracked the ebb and flow of the molecules as healthy volunteers ingested different amounts of two common dietary fibers, inulin and Andrea, what is this? Arabinoxalin? That's it. Yep. That's it. So Arabinoxalin is a grain fiber. It's an active ingredient in Metamucil and psyllium husk. And inulin uh, is a fiber found in some fruits and vegetables like bananas and asparagus. Um, And it's really gained a lot of traction. And I've seen it on the shelves as a supplement in the pharmacy and the grocery store. And so there is data to support that Arabinoxalin can help manage L LDL cholesterol, which is the bad cholesterol, and other cardiovascular risk factors, but inulin's effects are really less established. So it's been linked to some benefits, but also some potentially dangerous side effects such as inflammation and liver damage. So I won't get into this. We can post a link to the study. I won't get into too many of the details. But the study basically found that while arabinoxalin was an overall a boon for reducing bad cholesterol, high doses of inulin actually caused a spike in inflammation in some people. There was you know, one person who actually reacted very well to high doses of the inulin, but not arabinoxalin. And basically what the, what the researchers concluded is that there may be, this might pave the way for like personal 
personalized dietary interventions and that certain types of fiber may work better for certain people. And then here, I'm trying to, I'm just skimming this to see if there's anything else that I wanted to really emphasize here. I think that that's a pretty good takeaway. Was there anything else from the study you wanted to? I think it also underscores the fact that, you know, simply because something is marketed as being beneficial or being a fiber doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to lead to a desired physiological outcome, which again, is why it's always best to get things from food. Right. Well, and then interestingly, there was this other study that came out of Duke, another really well-respected uh, institution, and it sort of came up with a different conclusion, which was, and, and I can get into it just, well, I'll, I'll say it. So basically, they they looked at um, gut microbiomes of people who were fed three different kinds of supplements, and they looked at, what was it, inulin, dextrin, which is the-, the Dextrin's the one in Benefiber. Right. Yep. And then there's no way, I'll just say GOS. I don't know if you know how to say this long actual term here. I'm just going to say GOS, which is marketed as- Oh yeah, it's galacto-oligosaccharides. Of course it is. GOS, <laughs> which is marketed no, as so all that means. All that means is it's a long chain of galactose molecules. So it's a really long polysaccharide, so it's a carbohydrate. Long story short, they found that all three were beneficial, you know, they, they were good, but they were most beneficial for people who were really lacking, you know, who, who didn't get a lot of fiber from their diets. So that's where they saw the most benefit. So they said uh, participants who had been consuming the least fiber saw the greatest in increase in butyrate with the supplements. I don't know what that is. That's a byproduct that, that the microbes in the gut, they you know, produce and it's, it feeds into the colonocyte uh, metabolism and all that. So that's a, yeah. So be, their takeaway was that if you do not get adequate fiber through your diet, supplementation is a good thing and it doesn't matter too much um, which supplement you're taking. So I thought that was interesting. And there are, there are lots of studies. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then there's another study, you know, especially looking at specific medical issues, like there was a, a meta-analysis, I think it pulled over a hundred different studies and they were looking at the evaluation of fiber supplementation for chronic constipation. And of course found that there was a benefit. Now they're looking mostly at soluble fibers like psyllium husk and similar. But again, you know, the big TLDR is that you know, if you're taking the recommended dosages of some of these supplements, there's not a ton of evidence that they're going to be harmful. But because they're monotypic, they're only one type of fiber, it's not going to be as diverse as all of the benefits that dietary fiber offer. Um, you may not be reaping the same amount of benefits than if you were getting that from your food. But of course, if you're not consuming any fiber in your diet, some fiber is better than no fiber. Love that. And also for the people who who don't know what TLDR is, <laughs> we use that all the time and we're realizing more and more that people don't know. It stands for too long, didn't read. So it's basically just a takeaway, a summary of something that is actually very complex, you know? So just wanted to give a little shout out to people who are like, what the heck is a TLDR? Um, but that was a perfect takeaway. And there are so many foods that offer great dietary fiber. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll put those in our show notes. 
Andrea, do you want to take us home? Yeah. So thanks for joining us today. We hope you learned a thing or two. And if you're not consuming enough fiber in your diet, grab an avocado and bite into that. But if you want more unbiased science, please check out our Substack subscription. It's $5 a month to support our work. We do occasionally post extended content there, but the biggest perk is that you get access to our private Facebook group and our monthly Q&A. So you can check it out at theunbiasedscipod.substack.com. In addition, we're now recording video for all of our podcast episodes. So please subscribe to our YouTube. It's www.youtube.com at unbiasedscipod, same as our handle on all of our other social channels. And of course, we will continue to provide updates on COVID and all sorts of science and health topics on our social media accounts. So follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at unbiasedscipod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no nonsense, just science. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist.